In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Jared Santo about building the Changelog podcasting platform with Elixir and Phoenix. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 116. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wadden, and today it's my pleasure to be speaking with someone whose voice might be familiar to you if you're an avid podcast listener, Jared Santo of The Changelog. How's it going, Jared? Hello, it's going very well. Thanks for having me. So um, the reason I want to have you on the show today is uh, I was a guest on one of the the podcasts on your kind of like network of podcasts uh, that you've been running. And after we kind of did that episode, you kind of mentioned that maybe it'd be fun to have a conversation about how, I don't know, when was it? Like maybe two years ago or something? Mm-hmm. You guys uh, rebuilt sort of your entire like changelog platform uh, using Elixir and Phoenix. That's right. And um, Elixir and Phoenix are really cool and exciting technologies. And you guys were kind of pretty early adopters, I think, in trying to do some some web stuff there. Uh, and I thought it'd be really interesting to kind of talk to you about your experiences with that and how that's been going for you, what the learning curve was like and kind of contrasting it with maybe some of the tools and stuff that you used in the past. So mm-hmm. I don't know. How's that sound to you? That sounds really good. Yeah. It was a couple of years back. Uh, we were previously, so the changelog website goes back to Tumblr back Correct. when the, 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 the original changelog podcast started in 2009. So pretty much the dawn of GitHub was when it started. Mm-hmm. And that was Adam, uh, my, my business partner, Adam, as well as Win Netherland actually started that show. I wasn't part of it from the very beginning, but it was a kind of what it is now. It's a news feed and, and a podcast. Now we have a, a portfolio podcast, but back then it was just the one. And it was a Tumblelog. And they were on Tumblr for a couple of years. Uh, finally, I think in like the 2011, 2012 range, Adam relaunched the site on WordPress and uh, a similar timing, we moved the, we moved our hosting over to Five by Five. We joined the Five by Five network, mm-hmm. and we're on that for a couple of years. And then finally, we had pushed WordPress t- to its logical conclusion, as as people tend to do over time, as our needs grew more and more custom. And it was obvious, especially when we're going from one show to multiple shows, that it was time to do something else. So. That's where the changelog.com platform came from. I was uh, I've been a long-time web developer and most of my stuff has been built in Ruby on Rails over the years. So I came to Elixir from Ruby. And uh yeah, decided to write it with Elixir and Phoenix. It definitely maybe maybe early adopters, there's definitely other stuff out there, but I think one of the things that we provided early on was uh an open source production website yeah. that people could actually look at. There weren't very many of those, so I felt like I was kind of plumbing new ground in that regard um so i had to kind of learn things on my own because i didn't have any too many examples beyond the the official books and a few blog posts Mm -hmm. not nice so i think maybe like a good place to start would be maybe talking a little bit about like what the changelog platform can do like Mm -hmm. um i think uh you know you kind of like alluded to it like it was on tumblr then it was on wordpress and uh, at the surface you know it doesn't sound like it's like a crazy complicated website you post a podcast episode it shows up in the list or whatever um so i'm curious like over time like what sort of needs did you guys sort of develop what sort of tooling did you need for yourselves like behind the scenes like stuff that's maybe not right in front of everyone's faces that 
um, you know, is really important for you guys that kind of warranted putting together a custom tool for all this stuff. Sure. Absolutely. So yeah, it's, it is at the end of the day, a content management system. Um, one aspect of what we do, which most podcasts don't do is we cover news and podcasts. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a blog and the podcasts kind of fit into like a, a, a custom post type, um, back in the day. But now we have a complete separation of kind of the news side of what the application does and what the podcasting side in terms of management. Um, in terms of what a podcast host does, like I said, most of them are single podcast entities. So really the switch to having multiple shows was the time where we thought we needed something a little bit um, more advanced than what we were currently um, fighting up against. So when it comes to podcasts, I mean, you have the basic management of the information, You, as you well know, sure. right? Each episode, each, pod, each episode belongs to a podcast. An episode has show notes. It has an MP3 file. It has a name. It has uh, some people attached to it. Maybe the people are just text blobs in your show notes. Um, but we have rich, rich content types for all of our um, entities inside the system, which is really nice. So... Beyond that, there's the statistics side. There is the creation of a bunch of different custom RSS feeds that we want to have, um, which were kind of tougher in WordPress. And there is the um, ID3 tags and all that kind of stuff. So really streamlining our workflow. We were doing everything twice. So we would upload it into 5x5 system. We would take that RSS feed. We'd kind of munch it into uh, WordPress in order to publish it on our own website because we wanted to stay kind of the owners of our own content in that mm -hmm. regard. So we kind of published in two places. So really it was streamlining and just providing us the flexibility to build out our workflows. So the other side of, a, of an episode is promotion. And so we built out a pretty advanced queuing and buffering system using the buffer API. So we don't have to actually write the buffering part, but just integrating all that into, um, into one system. So it's not a pain in the butt, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. So you guys have kind of done the whole sort of podcast hosting thing um, bespoke, like you're not using some podcast hosting tool behind the scenes or anything. Like I'm using Simplecast, for example, to host full stack radio. Are you just kind of uploading files, storing them in your own like S3 buckets or, you know, generating your own RSS feeds, all that stuff. That's right. We do everything by hand, partly because we're developers and, you know, developers want to develop, but also because we really like to sweat the details and to be able to do, the little things when we want to without having to fight against the system that already exists or ask a host for permission or something like that. So yeah, we write our own RSS feeds. We upload the MP3 files, the system ID3 tags, everything for us. And then Fastly is our CDN. So they're the ones who actually do the serving of the files. They stream our log files back to S3. We parse those log files and generate our stats. That's awesome. So Getting into sort of like the technology uh, behind everything, you kind of mentioned that um, most of your background or like a lot of your background at least has been like working with Rails apps uh, yeah. and stuff like that. Uh, when did you get started with Rails? Well, really out back when it came out. So I was in college in 2002 through six mm -hmm. and was really... When did Rails come out? 2004, I think. Something like that, yeah. Somewhere around there. So right around 1.0, I think, probably 2005, 2006. I was really just a scripter, so I went to school 
uh, study information assurance. I was doing a lot of penetration testing and trying to hack websites and that kind of stuff. Cool. And so I didn't figure my, I didn't think of myself as like a developer. I was a scripter. I knew Perl. I knew Bash. And then I saw DHH's build a blog in five minutes a video, yep. which was epic back in the day. Yeah, for sure. And I had done some, like I was just basically in terms of web stuff, I had my own blog, which was on WordPress and I was just like tricking my blog out. That's how I learned a lot of the stuff. Um, was like, I wanted to like customize my sidebar. And so, uh, figuring out how to get my most recently played iTunes songs into my yeah, WordPress sidebar nice. was like how I learned a lot of web development, you know, yeah. just back when I had endless time and very, <laughs> very few skills. Um, but yeah, I saw that post by, by DHH and it was pretty amazing. So I thought, okay, I'm not, I'm going to ditch all of this, uh, the PHP stuff and I'm going to learn Ruby and Rails specifically fell in love with Ruby, um, more than Rails even. And yeah, there's there's the beginning of the story right there. So started building it, building sites for people, um, turned it into a career for ten or fifteen years doing custom contract development for people with Rails. Awesome. So what kind of motivated you to get into Elixir and Phoenix after uh, kind of cutting your teeth on Rails for so many years? Yeah. So I mean, a lot of it is you know podcast driven development. So I had we had Chris McCord on the changelog. Mm-hmm. And we had had Jose Valim, who's the the uh, author of the Elixir programming language, but really it was Chris, who uh, is the author of the Phoenix framework, um, who convinced me to really give it a go. At a certain point, with Ray, I still use Ruby on Rails to this day, so it's not as if I completely ditched it. Uh, I have plenty of projects still ongoing for customers and whatnot that are in Rails, but there is definitely things about it that over time you grow weary of. And a lot of it has to do with the the necessary hoops jumped through in order to get the performance to a place where you're happy with it, especially mm-hmm. for people like myself who I, I like things very fast. Sure. And I had grown used to like all these tips and tricks on how to make Rails fast. Um, and that is fine. And I still do that to this day, but it, it was, it kind of removed some of the joy of, of doing these things. And so we had Chris McCord on the change log and he talked to us about his little web framework and one of the things that always happens on the changelog is I hear this, about this amazing technology and I'm like, Adam, I'm going to totally go use this. This is amazing. <laughs> and then I never do. And it's like an ongoing joke of like, Jared's excited about a thing, but I'm never actually going to use it. Well, this was like the one time where I actually had an opportunity to use it. And I can't remember what it was. It was like a, it was for the changelog. I built this little web app. I feel like it was like one of those Slack invite things where you can where you can go and like put your email address in and it'll hit the Slack API to generate an the invite, invite to join you, the yeah. Slack, which is, I think they finally added that as a feature to their API. Yeah, which you been, can, I think you can have like a, like a permanent invite link or something now instead of like, yeah, everyone used but, to have those like one-click Heroku apps that they would spin up to like create like their Slack inviter or whatever. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I thought, well, here's a little need that we have and I could of course go use one of those one-click Heroku things, but what if I just try to build that with Phoenix? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I got it done in like two or three hours. And it was, you know, when you get a real fast, quick win, a lot of times, like that's all you need to get hooked. Sure. And so because of that, I was like, okay, this is cool. Um, and you know, for, for up, all the way up until now, the changelog has not been my primary gig. It's been a, a side project for me. That's changing uh, here real soon, which is exciting, but when you're building things on the side, even though it's for a, a, a for-profit entity, like it's for a business, but like WordPress was okay. We could like continue to limp along for a long time. You almost need 
something to get you excited about building a platform. Sure. And it's like building yet another Ruby on Rails app just wasn't exciting, right? Yeah. So yeah. I was like, you know what? I'm going to give this a go. And I even told Adam, like, I'm going to try this in Elixir. And I'm going to get a little bit down the road. And if I just can't actually get over the hump of productivity, then I'll just ditch it and start over with Rails and we'll just build a, a Rails app. But turns out I was pretty productive pretty fast. So it stuck. Awesome. So um, how much experience did you have with like functional programming before you started playing around with Elixir? Because I've played with it a little bit for, you know, doing some like exorcism.io exercises mm-hmm. and stuff and had a lot of fun with the language. But I think the reason that it was fun for me is because it was friggin' hard compared to <laughs> what I was used to because you just yeah. have to, you have to kind of rewire your brain to think about how you solve problems because there's, there's just like loops don't exist in the language. Right. You know what I mean? Like there's just like, you have to come up with totally different ways of doing things. Recursion all of a sudden is like something you do all the time, which is like something you never do in other programming languages. Right. Um, so what was that sort of like for you? Uh, was it totally like a new thing Were you sort of translating knowledge you had from, from other functional programming yeah. stuff? To a certain degree, I've always been a dabbler, and so I had dabbled in some functional programming. I actually had a false start with Erlang itself, so Elixir mm. runs against the Erlang VM, um, and I had been attracted to Erlang because of the speed and reliability and performance of it. Um, and so I took some you know, video courses and started writing a few things in Erlang. Well, I just couldn't get over the syntax of Erlang. It was just sure. too hard for me to, to grok. And so I didn't stick with that. But Elixir had this Ruby-esque syntax, and that's really the 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 bait and switch of Elixir. Is for Rubyists, <laughs> you're like, oh, this is for this is familiar. You know, it's not scary. And then you get in there, and like you've probably noticed, uh, it is completely different. It's not like Ruby <laughs> very much at all. Except it's for like on the looks. surface, it's like it is another language hiding in Ruby's clothes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it was. Uh, it was enough to to get me going. So I'd already I'd already learned kind of functional programming principles, and so I started. I was already applying them in my JavaScript code. Sure. I was applying them in my Ruby code. You know, immutability, um, first class functions, passing functions to functions, that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. that I did have some pre. I was predisposed to. For me, it was the pattern matching in Elixir, which was the really the hurdle, and the I didn't understand it in terms of that was like the the road bump but once i got it now it's it's my favorite thing and yeah. i think that's that tends to be the case is um when you when you completely understand the pattern matching features um it really clicks and you really feel productive using it so for the people who um haven't played with elixir at all um can you explain sort of pattern matching from your perspective and and you know how it kind of makes sense to you and, and what you use it for. Yeah, absolutely. And it's 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 difficult to explain in audio, so bear with me all. Um, I remember when Chris McCord explained it to me in audio, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm not following you. So I'll do my best. And the way that I take advantage of it the most, and the way I think you'll see it the most, is in the context of passing arguments into functions. So a lot of times what you have in dynamic languages is you have a function name, and then you have arguments passed into it. And then what you do a lot of times at the beginning of those functions is you have like guard clauses and conditions and you have branching based on like what actually was passed in. Sure. So like, I think it's going to be a string, but it might be an integer, you know? Um, and this is kind of when you're, you're trying to design these sort of like, 
like friendly APIs where it's like, well, you could pass in a model or you could pass in an ID and we'll kind of like make it work for you. You don't have to kind of worry about it. Like just trying to make things really convenient. Right. Convenient for yourself or you're taking user input, Mm -hmm. you know, and with user input, you're like, well, I think they're going to type this, but what if they send me some unknown thing and how do I handle all those situations? In fact, Avdi Graham had a great talk. I think he turned it into a book called Confident Code, Confident Ruby, maybe? Confident Ruby, I think, is the book. Yeah. yeah that sounds familiar. And that was a that was a great uh, talk that I saw. Maybe we can find it and put it in the notes because mm-hmm. this was a situation where I was writing all this code in Ruby in a certain way. I just didn't realize what I was actually doing. I was writing unconfident code because you're just not sure what values you're dealing with. And so you see it all the time in people's codes especially if you have a bunch of if conditions inside of a function or a method. And it's like, if it's an integer, do this, or case statements, right? Well, with pattern matching, uh, what you can actually do is you can have multiple versions of the exact same function. So let's say my my function is called uh, response, which is a terrible mm-hmm. name for a function. But, um, you know, in, in JavaScript or Ruby, you have, you know, function response or def response, and then you have the arguments. And then once you get into it, you have to deal with whatever comes in. Is it nil? Is it a string, etc. In Elixir, you can have two versions of the function called a response, or three, or four, or five. But they can have different uh, patterns like inside. Yeah. yeah, function signatures. They, and they can pattern match inside the arguments that, they're, that are received. And so instead of taking in whatever arguments there are and then doing your case statements or your conditions inside your functions, you can actually you can actually define the function that will only match on the input that you're expecting. And then you can define another version of the exact same function with the other input that might potentially come in. Sure. So whenever someone calls this function with nil, the version that's defined to accept nil automatically gets called with no exactly. work on your part. And if it's called with a number, the version defined for to accept a number automatically gets called so to me like what it reminded me of when i first saw it was um basically like i naively at first i thought oh this is kind of like method overloading that i'm uh that i remember from like c sharp where because it's like statically typed and you can just say well this takes an int and this takes a string you could have multiple definitions of the same method but i think like where it got really exciting with elixir was that um it didn't have to be just based on the types of things, right. right? Like it could be based on all sorts of like more, more interesting stuff. That's um, right. So that's why they call it pattern matching versus like type matching because yeah. let's take it an instance where you're receiving an object or in Elixir, it's a struct in Ruby, it's a hash, you know, or a dictionary, like, you know, key value pairs. Mm-hmm. Well, you can actually pattern match inside your Elixir function definition for certain sub-values inside of that object. So like take a person object, and I could say, well, if the person has a name field, call this version of the function. If the name field's empty, call this other version of the function. Or I could say if the name matches Adam, then call this version. Yeah. And so you, yeah, you can get real cool fancy. Part, right? It's like literal values even. You can You can just like match against it's like you're, you're taking like this data that the user's passing and you have sort of like a jig basically and you're trying to like lay it on top and it's like does it fit and if so yep. like we'll call like this version of the function i think what's like even cooler and you kind of alluded to this too but i think it's cool to call it specifically it's like you can even do stuff like if 
um, this argument is uh, a map where this key contains an array and the first item in that array is another map that has a name field that matches Adam, like really crazy stuff like that. That's right. So, so real world example of this, uh, I mentioned that we have this thing that buffers out mm-hmm. promotional tweets based on stuff that we publish. So everything in changelaw.com, uh, in terms of the news feed, which is the indexes, is uh, the object is called a news item. And a news item always has a URL field. Okay. okay. Sometimes it has also an attached object. And those are special news items that refer to things on our own website. So the point of changelog news is to point to other people's things that are interesting. So if you wrote a good blog post, I'd create a news item pointing to your blog post, right? It's a basic link blog style. Check out Adam's blog post. And so the URL would be yours. If it's an internal thing, because we have our own posts inside of our own website, we also have our own episodes. Well, there could be a URL, but it's the URL is not external. It's one of our own URLs. And then it also has an object ID, which is how you can look up that object inside of the um, database. Okay, mm-hmm. so when it comes time to queue up a news item, well, we just treat them all the same. We just tell the queuer, hey, queue up this news item. And then it goes in and pattern matches on the, the data inside of that news item object. And if it's an external thing, it'll do it one way. If it's a blog post, it'll do it another way. If it's an episode, but it can't find the episode ID, it'll do it this way. So we can do all of these really conditional branches without any if statements, without any branching in our code. You just look for the right version of the function that handles that particular nuanced piece of data and the implementation straightforward. Yeah, it's cool. It's almost like um, uh, an alternative kind of like more functional way to handle certain cases where you would use like polymorphism in Ruby, where you might have like different objects that all ha- implement the same method and you kind of yep. throw those all in one collection, iterate over them and call the publish method on all of them and they kind of do their own thing. This way you just have like a module that has like the the publish function or whatever, or the exactly. queue function and there's seven definitions there that accept all the different types and the language and runtime just kind of automatically dispatches everything to the right place based on kind of the shape of the data. Yep, exactly. So it is a, it is definitely a form of polymorphism without object orientation. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I think the other cool thing that I, that I remember from playing with Elixir with the pattern matching stuff that I think was like a really common pattern was like having different definitions of a function for when there's like um, items in a list or when the list is empty. And you do that sort of thing with like recursion a lot when you want to find out like normally you'd have like a, a conditional or something in a, in a recursive function to be able to say, okay, well, if the list is empty now, now we can finally return instead of like calling ourselves again. But with Elixir, you never do these like conditional checks to determine like, oh, is it time to like end the recursion? It's just the right function gets called and exactly, the because ends. the data is in, this, in, in the format that it expects. Yeah. So a, a good uh, way of thinking or explaining this is imagine, imagine that you have a function that you want to uh, handle two cases, the case that there's one thing it's received or the case that there's multiple. So like, is it a list or is it a single object? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, what's cool about Elixir is you can just have the two versions, and if instead of implementing both ways, you just have the single object version of the function call itself with and putting that single object like in an array. In list. Yeah, yeah, you just wrap <laughs> it in an array or a list and you call it yourself and now it's going to call the other version. So you're basically normalizing the data input with but these writing one like a separate entry point for the 
the function basically it's so cool it's like it, it it's, really it's, is one, it's such it's a cool one, declarative way to write stuff like you're not like doing all this like if this if this if this it's just like here's like the blueprint for like all the different options and it just magically happens it's, it's the one it's, feature that when i go back to javascript or ruby which i still write both of those languages on a very common basis i miss the heck out of it i'm like yeah. oh, i'm doing so much unnecessary branching because i have to do these checks all the time any elixir those things yeah. just kind of melt away it's, it's interesting just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors and that is cloudinary so if i had to describe cloudinary myself it's basically just the best way to store and serve images that i've ever seen in the past i used to use generic storage services like amazon s3 to store and serve images uh, but after switching to cloudinary i genuinely cannot believe i ever did this stuff any other way uh, so here's one example of how cloudinary has made my life easier uh, so you probably know that typically images are the heaviest resource your users have to download when they visit your site, right? Usually way more than your JavaScript or CSS. So in the past, I would spend a lot of time tweaking settings and tools like Image Alpha and Image Optim to try and optimize my image files so they weren't as large. Uh, with Cloudinary, I can just upload the full resolution file without even really thinking about it. And then by just adding a parameter to the image URL that I get back, uh, when I go to serve it on my site, Cloudinary will automatically optimize that image as best as it can, usually resulting in file sizes that are actually lower than what I was seeing when trying to optimize the images by hand. Uh, this is even more useful for like user uploaded images because instead of trying to do some fancy automatic image optimization in a background job on my own server or something, I can just send those images directly to Cloudinary from the browser, uh, request the optimized version back by adding that URL parameter, and bam, I've got an optimized image at a really small file size. Uh, so there's an enormous amount of other cool stuff that you can do through the URL-based API. That's really just scratching the surface, but you can do stuff like request images at different sizes so you can serve smaller images on on mobile devices so you're not wasting bandwidth. Uh, you can crop images to different dimensions. You can crop images using face detection, so just crop to the faces in an image. Uh, you can automatically add watermarks or text overlays or tons of different effects and stuff like that. It's a seriously impressive service. So Cloudinary has an amazing free plan where you can store 300,000 images and videos. Yeah, did I mention you can do all this crazy stuff, not just with images, but also with videos too. Uh, you get 10 gigabytes of storage and 20 gigabytes of monthly bandwidth on this free plan uh, so if you're not already using them definitely head over to cloudinary.com and check it out it really is one of my absolute favorite services that i use on my own projects thanks a ton to cloudinary for sponsoring this episode back to the show have you uh, played around with typescript at all no, I make jokes on JS Party that I don't do that because Nick Nisi <laughs> loves TypeScript. And I'm just trying to get him mad all the time, but uh, that's not really the reason. I just, I just haven't. Yeah, um, I was, uh, I was looking at it because, um, you know, everyone's kind of into it, and I kind of want to learn more about it. And um, you can do like some really cool type definitions with TypeScript that reminded me of like some of the things people do with pattern matching in Elixir, and it got mm. me thinking like, oh well, does does uh, TypeScript support like method overloading or any sort of pattern matching? And they say that it does, but the way that it works in TypeScript, which after like getting spoiled by Elixir felt like such a disappointment, mm -hmm. is that you can like define a function like four times with like different argument lists or whatever, but the actual function body can only live in one of those functions. So you can only have like, you can define all the different signatures, but you can't define the different bodies. And you have to define one body that handles them all by still doing all the like 
checks and stuff yourself mm. and i i saw it and i was like oh this is exciting and then i i got to the end and i was like uh i miss elixir who's <laughs> right anyways yeah there is a proposal i think for ecmascript to add her to get pattern, to add pattern matching JavaScript. yeah yeah that'd be awesome. i'm not sure where that stands or how it would compare but it's yeah because I, f- I feel like actually a lot of the stuff that we do in javascript is already like um a lot of the cool parts of pattern matching we kind of get now with, by doing like array destructuring and object destructuring. Like yeah. one of the um, one of the things that used to bite me a lot in Elixir when I was going through like uh, the exorcism exercises is I'd be defining um, functions, especially like you know when you need multiple versions of a function to kind of do some recursive problem mm-hmm. or something. And a lot of time I'd find myself in situations where I was having a hard time coming up with a name for an argument because it was really just like an array and I needed like the head and the tail. And I was like, uh, I guess I'll just call this list or something. And it was like my naive brain, like leaning on old patterns and not, not having it click for me right away. It's like, wait a second. Like if I know the names of the two pieces of this one parameter that I want, but I don't know what to call them as like a pair. Yeah. I should just name the two pieces and just like destructure them like right in the in the function definition, right? And um, right. I do that in JavaScript all the time now, and I feel like that's that's something that I kind of picked up from Elixir that was really. It's cool. kind of funny as you as you migrate languages. I joke that I I wrote Ruby inside of my Elixir for like two years. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're just ba- all you can really do is take what you know and then try to move it over into something else until you learn the styles and the idioms and the the strengths of a different language or, or ecosystem. And so for the longest time, I, you just don't have the the new frame of context. Like, well, I'm just going to write JavaScript in this Elixir. Yeah, sure. You know, I'm just going to like p- put the square peg in the round hole until I can find a, the, you know, a square hole, so to speak. And it takes a while. It takes yeah. longer than you think. Can you remember like any of the things specifically that um, you feel like, you were kind of doing maybe the Ruby way in Elixir that you remember like figuring out like, Oh, wait a minute. This is kind of how like Elixir people do it. And, uh, you know, any examples like that that were kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest one for me is I I've, I've been object oriented for so long that I'm so used to defining objects which have data and functionality, right. Mm -hmm. And they know about their internals and in functional programming languages, you don't use objects like that. You use structs, which are basically you can think of them like hashes or maps. Yeah. Where they have you know key value pairs and, and that, but there's no inherent knowledge about themselves. And so you pass what I used to say is you just pass bags of data around and, mani- and manipulate them, which seemed silly to me when we could have you know richer objects. So I I find myself always trying to use objects and, and wondering like why can't I just call you know, dot down case on a string. Well, that's not a good example because built-in types. Um, well, no, that is a good example because you'd call like the string module dot down case. I'm not even sure if that's a real function in Elixir, sure, but you yeah. wouldn't call, you know, a string dot down case. You'd call the string module, with capital S, and you'd pass in the string value to that. And for the longest time, I just had a hard time thinking that way. Yeah. Um, but what falls out of that is a lot of purity, which makes testing easy. It makes passing and chaining easy. Um, there are still times where I wish I could just, you know, define a struct with some with some, <laughs> yeah. with some functions inside there, you know. But um, for the most part, I've gotten over it. Awesome. Is there anything um, so far that you kind of feel was 
like better in like an object oriented programming language? Are there like certain classes of problems that you run into where uh, it kind of feels like more awkward or more cumbersome to solve in like an idiomatic elixir sort of style? Mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, like the one I'm just talking of, I think I still prefer object oriented um, to, uh, you know, I prefer a, a class or a module to be able to operate on itself still hmm. to as opposed to passing the data into a thing which will which will modify and, and there's never actual modification happening because it's immutable returning a new version of the thing that's you know been modified to your liking um i've gotten used to it i doesn't it, i don't hit my head up against it as much as i used to but to me i still like the idea of a user just knowing how to combine its own first and last name to create a full name versus sure. having a thing out there that I pass the user to and it, it outputs the, the last name or the full name function. So I still do prefer it, I think. And it still makes more sense to me in the world. Um, but it's not a game stopper by any, by any means. That's the only one that comes off the top of my head. I could probably look at some of my Elixir code and, and think about, uh, things that I don't prefer, but that's the one. Cool. Yeah. One of the things that, um, that I really love about Elixir that I feel like kind of made that, specific thing like a little nicer than i i would was worried it would be especially like in other functional programming languages maybe is the pipe operator in elixir mm-hmm. um where you can you know it, it, it almost reads like object-oriented programming in a sense where you can say like okay instead of calling like the downcase function and passing in the string you're taking the string first and then you have this operator and you're saying thread this into the downcase method. And it's basically just like replacing the dot in Ruby with this like exactly. awkward pipe greater than symbol thing. That's right. a little, a uh, little awkward to type for the, the first couple of tries. Uh, but I guess you get used to it, but I thought that was a really cool, um, cool way to sort of solve the ergonomics of that. Cause I really hate when you run into situations where you want to like, pass something through three functions and all of a sudden the whole thing reads like backwards because yeah it's you gotta like, nest it all inside yeah, right yeah 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 i think that is really jose valim's uh one of his great skills is 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 recognizing that and one of the reasons why elixir, elixir is so palatable is because that's really just syntax sugar all it's doing is is there's no like it's not like a language feature it's just a syntactic thing i think he does it with macros i can't remember the implementation but it's not uh like a core language feature, so to speak. It's just like a thing that he added to the language mm-hmm. and it changes everything because like you said, it, it basically for the developer, uh, it makes it feel like you're just fun or method chaining, you yeah. know, which is very nice and easy to do uh, instead of this deep nesting. And so, yeah, that operator is, uh, is really a, a savior in that way, in that yeah. way, because otherwise it would be very cumbersome yeah. and I probably would have went back because, that's what makes the functional style not feel like you're jumping through hoops all the time. Yeah, for sure. So um, when you're working with Elixir and Phoenix, um, one of like the areas of Elixir that I like just haven't even looked at because I, I don't even like know where it fits into my world of the sorts of things I build uh-huh. is like there's all this crazy like concurrency stuff and like gen servers and all this like terminology that I just don't even know what it means. I'm curious like how much of that have you like had to mess with to build something like the change log? How much of it do you want to play with more? How much, or how much of it is just like, you know what? Like if you're building WhatsApp, 
then maybe right. like that matters because <laughs> whatever, but I'm building a web app and like, I actually only need like this 50% of like what the language has to offer and everything's totally fine. What's kind of like, how's that kind of played out for you? Yeah. So, I mean, I've been writing Elixir code on the daily for a few years now and I couldn't write a gen server and I don't, I, I don't care to. So I know that's like makes me not a very good Elixir programmer, but I'm very much a pragmatist realist. Like I'm an applicant. I like writing apps. I like to get stuff done. And so if I, if I don't need it for changelog.com, I'm not going to learn about it. I like the fact that it's down in there. I do understand the the advantages of these things. And, um, I know that underneath, you know, my very surface level, uh, application code is some really fancy technologies that are really cool. But man, maybe that's a good thing that you're hearing that you don't actually have to learn those things to be productive. Yeah. 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 Eventually so, I probably will, but so yeah. far I still haven't, I don't know. I'm just scratching so the surface how, still. So I of just curiosity, like, do you know what a gen server is and what a gen server does? I know it has to do with, uh, no, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, I've, I've read the word gen server probably 300 times. That, that's like and, me. Like I, keep and I know it's it like a process thing that hosts, you know, hosts something that but you call, I don't know, you like, know, what problems I would have that I would reach for that to solve. And that's like the, which in a lot of ways that's encouraging. Like you're saying, it's like, yeah. it, like you, you don't have to be intimidated by the fact that there's all this like serious power there. Um, right. because like you can actually build a lot of, cool stuff and never really have to touch any of that stuff right if you're if you're using elixir and phoenix as a rails alternative like maybe you never need to even get into the weeds with with some of this really crazy no, i mean stuff. i've definitely gotten into so when you have a phoenix application there's a application.x file which and there's an endpoint and so there's these things that tie into the to cowboy which is the erlang web server that's that uh, that is used there are things that tie into that and you'll see like references to gen servers and there's, you know, supervisors. I've dealt with that a little bit where there's like a supervision tree of processes and you kind of plug your processes into this supervision tree and that's how the reliability is all managed. But from a, from a web developer's perspective, you can get very far and I'm, you know, I'm evidence of that without actually having to learn these things. Um, but if you want to dive deep and learn them, you sure can. Cool. So uh, maybe the next thing to get into would be uh, what are some of the some of the things that are maybe different about working with Elixir and Phoenix versus uh, Ruby and Rails that, um, you know, you think is either nicer than it was working with Ruby and Rails or were just kind of interesting things where you had to rethink sort of the way that you. Uh, worked, you know, whether that's the differences between like Ecto and Active Record right. or like how you queue background jobs in Elixir or you know anything that's just like kind of yeah. done differently there. So there's lots of stuff. So the first thing that really got me going with with Phoenix was Plug, and Plug is really the HTTP I don't know middleware that Phoenix okay. uses. Think of Phoenix building on top of plugs. Every controller in Phoenix is a plug, and so there's a whole this idea of a plug system. And the nice thing about that is is web servers, web applications are very uh, pipeline driven. So if you think about a request comes in and then a series of steps happen and then a response goes out. Sure. And so the way plug is, is architected, which is really nice is basically you have this connection struct, which has all the information about a request and a response. And that connection struct is basically just passed from function to function to function to function until it's eventually returned back out to the okay. requester. 
And it's very pure in that way. And so you can plug your code anywhere into, it's kind of like rack middlewares a, a, a little bit. Um, you can plug your code anywhere into it, modify the connection, and then re return that connection. And it's very easy to compose functionality. Uh, the, the, the thing that I loved right away, I mean, it maybe changed since then, is I broke that like right away, you know, I, I broke the connection and it, the whole thing just like threw up the uh, stack trace and the stack trace was like nine functions deep. It's just not <laughs> a lot of code. Yeah. And there, you know, when you're used to a rail stack trace where you're diving into, you know, active support and active record and action controller and there's just like, it goes on and on and on all the ins instrumentation code. It's very difficult to know what's going on inside of that stack trace. The fact that the plug stack trace was so shallow was like, oh, okay, there's actually not that much code going on here. That's not my code. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of nice. Um, so plug is really cool. I, I like the, I think it fits into a functional pattern really well in that you're just returning a new connection each time. There's no mutability there. Um, and it really feels like a pipeline. What else? So Ecto and Active Record are quite a bit different. Ecto is... Uh, really learned from Active Record in many ways. That's the Ecto is the uh, the Elixir you know, database library. Um, mm -hmm. Not really first party, but pretty close to first party. Um, pretty much everybody uses it. And it's really nice. It has the separation of concerns, which Active Record doesn't, in terms of separating out the query stuff uh, from the schema stuff. And these are all really good things. It turns out that it's slightly more cumbersome because of that. It also has some features which are great for for developers just getting into the game, but really drive me nuts. Um, <laughs> one of which is it will help you not do N plus one queries okay. by requiring you to explicitly preload all the uh, relations that you're doing in a query. Yep. Which is really nice because that's a, a way of being, you know, making your website real slow without knowing about it. Sure. It's like diving into a relation and not knowing that you're yeah just like iterating you know, over doing like 500 database queries and, yeah. right <laughs> so it's there to help you in that regard and um that's really nice but what it does require you to do explicitly preload all your relationships everywhere and that becomes annoying um over time you can look in our code base and see a whole bunch of things that are just preloading stuff because i pretty much want a bunch of stuff all the time you know yeah so, but Ecto overall is, I would, I would describe it as slightly more verbose than Active Record. But if you're familiar, uh, you can be pretty productive in Ecto really quickly. Um, background jobs are kind of built right in unless you need like scheduling and certain level of uh, persistence and stuff in your background jobs. Other than that, you can just basically background a process. And it just works. So um, if you just wanted really to cool. do something like send out like a transactional email or something and you didn't want that to block the yeah. request, what's kind of that look like? Yeah, you just do like a task.start async, send it in this little block, and it just backgrounds just it. just happens magically. Yep. That's cool. So that's pretty, yep. Very <laughs> nice. cool. So um, that kind of gets me thinking about uh, just like in general what other technology and stuff you're using with the site because yeah. um, all my backend stuff that I've built that has been like any real serious degree of complexity is mostly with like Laravel and with Laravel, when we're trying to do like queuing and stuff like that, you have to use some sort of tool for that. Like you're either using like Redis or mm -hmm. 
uh, you know, like SQS or your some sort of tool to kind of do all the stuff in the background. But with Elixir and Phoenix, it sounds like it's just the language supports having a gajillion processes running, exactly. like stuff that doesn't have to be like backgrounded for forty days or whatever, <laughs> you know, right. or, or scheduled or whatever can just like happen happen right away. So, um, what sort of stuff are you using? um still like are you still using something like redis for anything like what are you using for your database um where are you kind of like hosting everything right okay sure so the database is postgres i've mm-hmm. been a postgres user for probably a decade and so it's my go-to um there is no redis involved we do have some caching where you would normally reach for a memcache d or whatever um, but we're just using built-in Erlang tools for caching. There's a Erlang tool called ETS, which is cool. like a basically in-memory table. And so I'll cache some results there. Uh, specifically like RS, we have a master feed, which used to actually load all of our episodes of, from all time. Um, but the podcast indexes didn't like that very much. It got to be like five megabyte XML file. So now it's limited, but there's just no reason for that to do the queries all the time. You know, even though it's relatively fast, um, so I'll cache that result for like five minutes or whatever, and that's just using built-in Erlang things. Um, so Postgres is pretty much it. We don't use Redis. Is is that pretty common for like Elixir and Phoenix? Like I know in like the Node world, I was playing around trying to build like my first backend Node app a couple months ago, and I felt like when I was reaching for like Postgres or MySQL that I was a weird kid on the block, like. In terms of like when I was looking through the tools, seeing what was popular, it was like, man, using like SQL with Node feels like I feel like I'm doing something weird here because it seems like that's not what everybody else is doing. What are uh, they doing? With, well, it's not, it just seems like no SQL stuff is so much more yeah. popular and like Mongo, mm-hmm. Mongo, Mongo, Mongo everywhere. Um, but with Elixir and Phoenix, like is Postgres kind of like that's kind of like a community standard, kind of like Postgres or MySQL was in Rails? I would say so. It's the default um, out of the box experience with Phoenix. So I think I think I think that's fair to say. I think it also does support MySQL and SQLite, and I'm sure there's Mongo adapters and all that True. out there. So, but uh, yeah, I would say Postgres is pretty much what I've seen so far out there in the wild. Nice. But yeah, we don't really have any other uh, infrastructure. We do have, use S3 for some backups and for. Mm-hmm. Uh, stuff like that. We're on Linode, so we have a long-time partnership with Linode. Um, so we, our servers are on there, and like I said, Fastly is our CDN. So we route everything through Fastly, specifically all, all the static assets and MP3s and stuff are served from them. Um, that's about it, I guess. I mean, in terms of infrastructure, we do have Nginx in the mix. Um, but we're using a Linode... Uh, uh, node balancer on our front end as well so we have a little bit of a a proxy there but that's a that's all it's all pretty stock just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors and that is DigitalOcean. so DigitalOcean is a simple developer-friendly cloud platform optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive api multiple storage options integrated firewalls load balancers and more uh, i've personally been a customer of DigitalOcean for about five years and i use them to host all of my server-side projects like my custom course platform for example which is built with laravel a lot of the guests that i've had on the show in the past are DigitalOcean 
customers as well. Uh, for example, Taylor Otwell, the creator of Laravel, he uses DigitalOcean to host all of his products like Envoyer and Laravel Forge. And Jeffrey Way actually uses DigitalOcean to host Laracasts as well. Uh, one of DigitalOcean's newest features that I'm personally really excited about is managed databases, uh, which lets you spin up a completely managed database server so you don't have to worry about anything like backups, uh, managing read-only replicas, or just general server maintenance. Now, DigitalOcean is already an extremely affordable service. You can spin up a server for as little as $5 a month, but they've been kind enough to offer a free $50 credit to Full Stack Radio listeners. So head over to do.co slash full stack, all one word, to claim your $50 credit. And thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. So what does it look like to actually like deploy Elixir? Because I think that's probably the thing that would be the most intimidating um, yes. for me. Like. To me, it's like, okay, well, Heroku supports it, thank God, because I don't know how the hell else to deploy it anywhere. Exactly. Um, so what does it look like for you when you're running like your own uh, VPS like that to actually yep. get this thing running? So I was very much in your boat there. So uh, I phoned a friend, and we have uh, a member of our community, Gerhard Lazu, who is kind of a DevOps uh, genie. And we've, I've had, we've done two iterations of actually the way that we go about doing all of this mm-hmm. over the years. We, we have changelog episodes about this um, because we bring him on to, to talk about the infrastructure because uh, he's very good at setting all that up. So I can tell you it's a, a Docker swarm thing that uh, when we push to GitHub, CircleCI basically uh, pushes a new Docker build up to Docker Hub and then our... Uh, our containers on the host will watch that and basically pull that thing down and do a little bit of magic. It's all open source in our repo, but I don't pretend to completely understand it. So basically I punted on all of that, just similar how you'd punt to Heroku. I just punted to Gerhard and he has uh, helped me get it all set up because that was something that I also was not uh, familiar with how to get all that done. Cool. Are you using Docker for local development too, or are you just using like the, uh, you know, whatever the Phoenix local server stuff is. So our official readme says, here's how you, you, here's how you contribute. And it has to do with Docker compose. And then I go off and, you know, do not, as I say, do as I say, (laughs) not as I do. I don't know. I just run everything locally uh, because I'm old school and lame. Um, And I already had it all set up before we got the Docker stuff going. So that's the, that's the official happy path to, to development is to use Docker. And I can do the commands and run it, but I just tend to just like to run everything right there in my terminal without any sort of intermediary. So I'd personally still just do that. Awesome. Um, is there any kind of other pieces of, of like kind of the platform and kind of the technology behind it that you think are uh, interesting and, and people would be interested to know more about that we haven't touched on? Well, the JavaScript might be interesting. Yeah, what are you guys doing there? Is it like a server rendered kind of Rails style app, or or is it like a SPA with an API? Or no, it's uh, it's old school server rendered. I a lot of the the SPA stuff, I think it's kind of Yagni for especially for content heavy sites like ours. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess the reason why I bring up the JavaScript is because it's so boring and and normal. In fact, it's still written. It doesn't use jQuery, but it's still written in like jQuery style imperative, like hook into <laughs> some codes and call some functions. Yeah, yeah. Um, because, you know, why go crazy and over engineer something that doesn't necessarily need to be? We're getting to a point now. I mean, I, I do know how to at least um, 
write my JavaScript in, in somewhat scalable fashion, still using that style. So we have components and, and, and stuff like that. But um, it's very old school, like, you know, 2010 style JavaScript. And we're just now getting to the point where um, I'm about ready to start introducing a little bit more uh, modern component-based front-end stuff, which will probably be either be Svelte or um, React or uh, what's the skinny version of React? Preact? Yeah, Preact, something like that. For a few of these things that are getting fancier, we do have, I guess the TurboLinks aspect is, is somewhat interesting as well. We have one aspect of an SPA that you'd think would make us go SPA, which is uh, a persistent player across pages. Okay. So if you're on the homepage and you hit play and our podcast starts to play, then you go to a news item to read yeah. some commentary. Well, we don't want to stop the player. We want it to keep loading. Dude, just a quick thing to chime in with there. It is crazy to me how shallow your needs need to be to immediately want to push you to building an SPA. Like yes. I had the same problem with like a documentation site where I wanted like the sidebar scroll position to be preserved as you navigated through the site. And it's yeah. like, holy crap, like so much, so many stupid, annoying challenges when uh, <laughs> just to do something so simple. It's just like, I, know, I right? wish I was building a React app right now. <laughs> like, like It's funny. All, but you're taking on all this stuff just to solve so like one tiny little problem. So exactly. yeah, so what did you guys end up doing for that? Yeah, so this is where I say, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a pragmatist. So um, we actually pulled in TurboLinks, which is, you know, comes out of Rails land and is mm-hmm. the much despised uh, because it caused many headaches over the years for programmers. Uh, JavaScript library, which basically hijacks every anchor click mm-hmm. and does an Ajax request instead so that you're not reloading the page, but you're just fake reloading the page. Um it got us where we needed to go because all we needed, like I didn't want any of the other fancy SBA stuff. I just wanted a persistent player across pages, page loads. And so and the, the way you do that is like there's some data attribute or something that you slam on elements that you want TurboLinks to just like don't screw with this. Exactly. So uh, you can do like data dash TurboLinks dash permanent for something that's just like always going to be there. So that player div, uh, which is on every single page, uh, you do that. And then there's like, data dash turbo link slash no like off or something so anything that's like when we link back and forth between our admin we don't want turbo links to load the admin we just want to go to the admin standard style so we just turn it off on those links um it took a little bit i actually i I have a blog post which i can uh, give it to you for the show notes that talks all about that implementation cool and why we chose turbo links even though most people run the other direction um when faced with it because at the end of the day, it got us to where we wanted to go faster and with way less code than switching, by then completely redoing the architecture for that one feature, you know? Um, that being said, we're at a point now where I do have enough JavaScript in the mix that I'm ready to probably start introducing some more rich components um, because it's going to get, it's getting near spaghetti at this point. Yeah. You know, although I, I held it off for, for long. <laughs> nice. What is a, what is like the community's sort of perspective on kind of how you build kind of JavaScript heavy apps in the Elixir and Phoenix world? Like, um, are a lot of people just using Elixir as an API? Like, is that more common than using it for like server rendered stuff? Or is it the inverse? Like, I know like Chris McCord is working on like the Phoenix live view stuff, which is kind of like the middle finger to the yeah, <laughs> JavaScript We're all pretty excited about so. live view because um, it is kind of that. But 
Honestly, I would, I've seen both. I, I think a lot of people are using Elixir just for backend APIs because it's so fast and so productive. Um, and they're just ditching, you know, any, there's no front end on the app at all. Um, or they're writing, you know, they'll have a separate repo with a React app or, you know, that typical fashion. Um, but I've also, I've seen a fair bit of ones that are just like, hey, this is a website and we got some JavaScript wrinkles, kind of like ours, and they're happy to do that. So I wouldn't say there's a necessarily like the, the way most people go. It just depends on circumstance. But live view is very exciting and a lot of people are waiting for that. And um, that's one of the aspects of Phoenix, which we don't actually use, which is there is like the channels implementation. It provides a lot of the real time stuff. Um, so if you want to do chat applications without, you know, without doing a real uh, front end SPA, you can do that with Phoenix. It just these are features, again, that I just haven't dealt with yet. Cool. So I think, um, yeah, maybe that's a good place to start sort of wrapping things up. Um what are cool. kind of some of your favorite resources that you'd recommend to people who like kind of want to get started down this path and maybe want to build their own Elixir and Phoenix applications coming from a, a Ruby or Laravel mm. or, you know, Django background. Good question. I'm trying to look up the name of the book. There's an official programming Phoenix. There's a book written by Jose and Chris, which I read. And maybe it's not worth taking the time to find the name of it. We can just link to it. Sure. Programming Phoenix. There it is. Programming Phoenix. Productive, reliable, fast. So that's uh, by Prague Prague. That book's really good. Uh, that did was you, one of the. Did you read that like before reading anything about Elixir, or uh, do you think you kind of need to know the language a bit before you dive into that? Hmm. I would just give that a go. I would say if you've been, if you've been, maybe if you're new to software development in general, try to do some Elixir tutorials first. But I would say if you've been writing web apps for a while, um, give that a go and see what see what happens. Cool. And then um, the Elixir forum is spectacular. Elixirforum.com. It's really high quality. It's like if Stack Overflow was just for Elixir and didn't have all the, the crazy moderation and all the stuff going on in Stack Overflow. So I definitely would submit that. Uh, the Elixir uh, Slack is really active. I got some help in there earlier on. These are things that I'm just pulling out of memory. I don't actually use them anymore so much, but I, I did get a lot of help there. So the people were really nice. It's very active. I would definitely submit that to folks as well. And then, um, yeah, check out our code base because actually we have a, uh, a community member Nick Janatakis, who does Docker and Python web programming videos, and he's building a video platform for himself. And he's basically built his entire platform just by looking at our code base awesome. and uh, following along. So he's had a lot of really uh, interesting conversations with me and some good feedback and has you know, showed me some security holes and whatnot over the, over the years. <laughs> um, so there's some evidence that you know, if you want to build your own thing, and it doesn't have to be a podcasting platform, but if it has similar types of things going on, um, at least one guy got a lot of use out of our open source code. So I would submit yeah. that as well. That's awesome. I think that's, I think that's a great way to get started. I think that's probably where I would start is just kind of poking through there and trying to like trace my way through it and try to figure out how the pieces are all wired up. There's definitely no better way to learn how to build something than looking at something similar that someone else has actually built. I find that so much nicer when you have the full context, you can click around yeah. in the sidebar of your editor and kind of look at all these files versus trying to flip through a book and find out 
you know, how do you do this? How do you do that? It's kind of nice yeah. to be able to just see it and reverse engineer it sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I would have died to have uh, a code base like ours open source when I was learning this. I definitely would have, I would have ramped up a lot faster, especially if you already have a lot of experience. You can just look at it and see how it's all wired together. Plus you can hop in, change log Slack. I'm happy to answer questions about it. Like, hey, Jared, why'd you do this? Or, you know, what is, what's going on here? Uh, I love having these kinds of conversations, so I can be a resource as well to anybody out there who's trying to dig in and, and figure things out for themselves. There's a there's an Elixir channel in our Slack, and there's also just a dev channel where Nick hangs out and he prods me once in a while uh, about things. Awesome. Cool, man. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to come and chat with me about this stuff. Is, uh, is there anything you want to plug or anything before you get going? I don't think so. I think we've said changelog.com enough times at this point that... Uh, <laughs> If people aren't getting the picture, then I don't know what else I can say. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again, dude. It's really been awesome uh, having you on. You bet. Thanks for having me. Well, there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jared. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, they'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 116. Thanks to Cloudinary and DigitalOcean for sponsoring the podcast this week, and we'll see you next time.